Shot Reverse Shots. I'm Joe Gastineau and I'm pleased to say that joining me in person rather than via satellite is Ed Davis. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Um, I've just had a lovely Dockfest, a lovely tiring Dockfest. Yes, the reason that Ed is in the country is because we have been covering the Sheffield International Documentary Festival or Dockfest. If you're into the whole brevity thing, we've been there for five days and nights uh, enjoying the sights and sounds of one of the world's most respected documentary festivals and also one of the most fun Mm -hmm. festivals in general um we have been to see pretty much the kind of broad spectrum of everything that Dogfest has to offer we've seen a lot of films we've been to a lot of events we've seen some live music we've been to some sessions and some master classes all for your enjoyment so you don't have to we've been we've been covering it um the first uh probably thing we should talk about because we're going to go through this in the way that we uh previewed it um beforehand uh is to kind of talk about each one of those things as we go uh the one of the big things we previewed was the opening night events which were split into three separate events what were they uh the sort of the main one or the first one uh was the big melt which was a um a live scoring of uh, a documentary well it's not really it's kind of an abstract film about the history of steel wasn't mm, it? it was loads yeah. of archive footage of a hundred years of sheffield steel so that the, the the steel making process but also the lives of ordinary people um uh, it's soundtracked by um jarvis cocker richard hawley um a couple of other members of pulp they had a 25 piece brass band who yep. kind of marched in at one point and then marched out they had a children's choir mm-hmm. who came on a harpist uh, i think it's a, ha- a harper harper <laughs> yeah uh, the harpist um yeah there was also um a few members of richard hawley's band in there um there was uh, a couple of djs yeah there were a couple of djs at one point um there was a like a string uh, quartet or quartet a quintet. from Manchester, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, they of, were booed throughout. They were, yeah, for being for the wrong side of the Pennines. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, we went to see that, and and this is what we thought when we came out. Wow, that was quite a way to get things started, Ed. Yeah, as you can probably tell, it's buzzing round here. Yeah, hard to describe. It was a, a kind of a, a gang of musicians of, of various kind of uh, pedigree, and then the whole thing was kind of shambolically orchestrated by Jarvis Cocker who instead of stood there looking at sheet music waving his arms in a rhythmic fashion was crawling around on the floor making racket with boxes megaphones feedback tubes everything it's amazing it demonstrates how electric a performer in that he's completely captivating even though we can only see the back of his head it did have you learned anything about steel or did you just see a kind of kick-ass gig I kind of saw a kick-ass gig featuring members of like one of my favourite bands and being so close as well, we got really good seats. If anyone wants a sense of how close we were to Jarvis Cocker, if it was like Jet Li at the end of Hero close, I could have leapt with a sword and stabbed him. Okay, a, f- a few days have gone. Uh, how has the Big Melt sat with you since? Uh, very, very well. I mean, like... It was amazing at the time because you know I'm I was I've always been, I've been a big pulp fan for a really long time so, and that's the first time I've ever seen Jarvis Cocker live that didn't involve just kind of like seeing him on the street and kind of following him, which uh, is I think is something that anyone who's ever kind of lived in Sheffield has probably done. Yeah, Cocker spotting is a uh, is <laughs> is a, uh, a traditional pastime of the Sheffielder. Um, I yeah I really loved it. Uh, and I think it was it was the perfect way to start the festival. Um, it was a kind of uh, a really great way to encapsulate everything that Dotfest is about. Mm. A kind of a unique event that was a huge celebration. It kind of had a bit of a punk kind of ethos to it. It was uh, kind of 
a bit shambolic, but in the best possible way. Um, yeah. Straight after that, um, uh, Festival Goes had a choice of what to see next. Uh, the, we had the European premiere of uh, a, a Pussy Riot, A Punk Prayer, a film about the art punk collective uh, of the same name. Um, you didn't see that. No, I um, I ran off to watch uh, another film, which I think we'll be talking about later. Yeah, so I grabbed Tom Grater of Tom's Movies to find out what he thought. Uh, film was okay, Tom? Yeah, pretty good. Both enjoyed it, I think. Yeah, it was It was kind of... Uh, didn't really tell us anything we didn't already know. I think that was no, a bit of the problem with it. That's the negative side to it, is that it's a bit like reading the BBC News article about Percy Wright, in that you kind of can learn it all in like five minutes. But we also said on the flip side cobbled together very quickly obviously like some of the most recent footage must have been filmed what like a month ago if they did it in february and it's seven months down the line i'm not someone who is particularly well read in pussy right i just did a little bit of cursory reading yesterday but there was no actually no surprises in there for me at all and there's always an issue with these kind of films in that it's timing like they need to get it out to Dogfest because Dogfest is the big documentary festival but the story is not finished yet you know there's so much more developing now and as we were saying there have maybe even been some developments since the film's been finished, that kind of cast a different a different light on things, which makes it difficult because now there's going to have to be a Pussy Right 2 when they get out and etc. cetera, et cetera. Uh, Are you saying they're franchise building, Tom? Is that <laughs> exactly <laughs> what it's like. Like, um, what were those those horrific films about the poor free guys who got... Oh, Par- Paradise Lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just had to keep making another one because it went on and on and on. Yeah, the guys who directed that have now got nothing to do with their lives. Yeah. Because now they're free. They're going to have to seek down another horrific crime. Yeah. I have to say that that reaction that we gave um, I hasn't, I haven't kind of softened on the film at all. It was, it was very much a by the numbers um, film that you know really didn't add anything to mm-hmm. uh, to to kind of that that story. Yeah. Um, so other than that, the other film to see as part of this kind of the third prong of this trident of documentaries uh, was a film called The Summit, which was about the ascent up. K2, the ascent and descent up K2 in Pakistan. Mainly the, the descent. The descent was the uh, the kind of the key part of it. Uh, it screened on open night in the Devil's Ass Cave in Castleton, and a few kind of brave souls that we know saw it, and they said it was actually rather pleasant. They said it was uh, there was a free bar. They put deck chairs out. It wasn't as cold as everyone thought it would be. Uh, we actually saw it uh, in the slightly more uncomfortable surroundings of Sheffield's Odeon, um, and here's what we thought of the film when we came out. What one of the things that was really interesting about it was that the story itself was really unclear to pretty much everyone involved, including the people who are actually there. Yeah, it was uh, presented at the start that said that um, no one really knows the full story, but this is the kind of best version of the facts that we've got based on everyone's uh, kind of eyewitness statements and what little photographic evidence there is of what happened. But uh, it's an incredibly dangerous thing. We got told that um, out of everyone who goes up K2, one in four dies. Yeah, on the way down. On the way down. Yeah. Uh, That's not good odds, is it? No, those are pretty terrible odds. And I think a large part of it was watching it and thinking about the kind of the madness of people wanting to go up a mountain that high and then kind of come down and how dangerous it is and, and you know one of the questions in the film is kind of why did this happen did it happen because of people's mistakes or did it happen just because nature's a bitch uh, and the film kind of is kind of in the middle on that because as as we say you know people were they were oxygen deprived they had loads of um 
they were they were uh, high altitude, so their minds may not have been working. So not everyone necessarily remembers what actually happened, and so it's hard to tell if it was due to an error or if it was just due to nature. Um, but I think in the end, it kind of seems to err more on the side of it being nature than anything else. Yeah, we had the kind of uh, the case that you used in the example of the Q and A, where a guy who actually turned back 150 meters from the summit, so he could have climbed it, but because it was they were behind schedule. He knew he had to get back down, and he made what was, you know, in after, you know, in kind of after the fact, proved to be uh, the correct decision. But then just got hit by a freak ice slide and yeah. uh, wiped out. So he made what was the sensible choice, and it still didn't count for him. And pretty much everyone else on the mountain seemed to make fairly sensible decisions, uh, and it still got them. It's kind of like the most implacable horror movie villain ever. So those three films, uh, those three events, um, you know. Anyone would agree that they're kind of a really great way to to show the breadth of what Dotfest Dot does. Mm, I mean, even if you don't like the uh, like the Pussy Riot film, I mean, you were telling me that um, incredibly young blogger and um, real life Tintin Charlie Line of Ultraculture wrote that it was uh, the sound of nothing very loudly or something, wasn't it? Yeah, the art of saying something incredibly yeah. loudly but saying nothing at all or something. Yeah, so and if, yeah, so that was kind of the the idea that it's. And that was—it's kind of an important, an important documentary about something that's happening, but perhaps doesn't really say anything particularly interesting about it. But you know, obviously, it's a high-profile thing about a very high-profile event, so you can see why they would want to do it. Whereas I think something like the summit, like you know, putting the summit on in a really interesting place, that kind of complements it, um, which they've done similar sort of things in the past. And uh, and obviously, the big melt is a sort of big. Um, exuberant and kind of like uh, exhilarating event that you know that Dotfest has uh, over the years kind of become really great at putting on yeah I mean last year was uh, British Sea Power um, Mm -hmm. live score and it was it was something that I mean it would have taken quite a lot to top that and uh, they did they kind of went all out and and, um, you know it was a really apt way to celebrate the 20th anniversary uh, the winners were announced yesterday uh, they were still waiting on the audience awards to come in because uh, you know things were screening right up until nine o'clock last night and all the votes won't have been counted yet but yeah we've got um the special jury prize was given to uh, the act of killing uh, which is a film that both uh, you and i saw mm. um and we felt very strongly about um and yeah let's hear a little bit of, of our thoughts in the immediate aftermath the film is kind of very nearly impossible to describe where the the director has and it was revealed in the Q&A afterwards he was actually making a film with uh, the family of the survivors right and they we were coming up against constant struggles about mm. how they couldn't get anyone to cooperate so they said well the, the only way we can do this is to go straight to the perpetrators right and the perpetrators um, not only helped them make the documentary but reenacted the um, the acts of uh, kind of horrific violence and murder that they perpetrated now what made it peculiar is that all of the perpetrators who reenacted the uh, acts of uh, horrific genocide did so with no real creative constraints no and it got weird didn't it it did i mean one of them was a guy a very large man who um throughout the film in, in with the exception of few parts was doing it in drag as like a sort of brazilian dancer yeah always in drag and if you were to pick one out of the group to be in a bikini it, it wouldn't, wouldn't be, be him, him no um, and yeah, there was a bit where he had uh, a guy who was a leader of a death squad who had killed estimated over a thousand people, and he had his kind of headless corpse buried in a mile of sand, and he was trying to dress, he was dressed in drag, 
and he was trying to make the headless corpse eat his own penis. Yes, it was most remarkable. Yeah. Um, very, very odd film, very very interesting film. Their candour throughout was kind of startling. It's like there's, there was one bit where they were just driving down the street and uh, Anwar, who's kind of the, the, the central figure in it, he was one of the... Anwar really Congo, the greatest name of any mass murderer ever. Uh, it's definitely up there. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, he's driving along and he says, um, we killed lots of people there, I call it the House of Blood. And it's just like driving along in an open-top car, mm. being recorded, and just kind of being completely blasé about it. But obviously the what you see in the film, that in Indonesia the killings are these kind of this thing that's kind of a celebrated part of the history. There's one point where they go on like a morning television program with the Indonesian equivalent of Lorraine Kelly mm. and at one point they're talking about it and she goes, uh, and she literally says something along the lines of, hooray for the com- the deaths of the communists. Yeah, let's have a round of applause for killing the communists. For, for our group, for our paramilitary organisation who we've loaded the uh, loaded the audience with in sort of the creepiest version of live and kicking ever. Yeah, it was, um, I have to say that like, uh, I, was, I was kind of uh, geared up for the film to be incredibly difficult and when we were watching the film, um, I didn't actually kind of feel like it was much kind of very difficult at all. But as soon as I stepped out of the cinema, it kind of hit me right between the eyes of how kind of hard that was. And, yeah. and, and I think my, the problems I'm having with it is that I still can't quite compute the information in the film. Yeah. I can't compute these people being so blasé about, you know, garroting people to death on a kind of you know, three times daily basis. And I had to kind of just go and sit in a restaurant and just be on my own for a bit because it was just just quite hard. Eating a burrito as well, which is the saddest of all foods. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, you know, I was sad up to the point of needing a burrito. Yeah. I think what is to be said about the act of killing, I mean, I I think it was personally, I think it's a worthy winner of the prize. It was a a very unique film um, and a very challenging film. But, I mean, we both agree that we feel slightly more cautious about the film in the kind of universal praise that it's received elsewhere because we watched the one screening of the three they held over Dotfest of the director's cut. And most director's cuts are maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes longer than um, the theatrical releases. But the, sh- the, the version we watched was 40 minutes longer, which made the film, you know just shy of kind of two and three quarter hours um and i i felt that had we seen the theatrical cut we would have had a m- much more positive response to that film i definitely would have. i mean like my main thing when i said to you afterwards was it just felt like you know i i spent the whole time thinking you know um this film like particularly the last hour is like this film needs to be like an, a good half an hour shorter than it is you know and i thought i i because i didn't realize that this wasn't how the difference in length of time between that and the version that's going to be released theatrically mm. and the version that everyone else saw um i i was just like a little perplexed as to why i'd not heard anyone say <laughs> this film's like really interesting and a great subject matter and these kind of central figures are all fascinating but why is it so fucking long yeah it it, it the stuff that they cut out i mean there was a, a kind of a, almost secondary character and it kind of followed him and his campaign to be uh, elected to a kind of a, a position of political power um and th- it was great but it, it took away from the central journey which was the journey of anwar congo mm. um the kind of central figure who who features in the film it was um i was slightly disappointed and i'm i'm not i don't want to kind of lay blame at the foot of the festival or anything because you know they have done an absolutely incredible job of entertaining us all and and uh, for the last 5 days but 
it was it wasn't actually ever billed as the director's cut, was it? In the program, no. We only found out when we sat down and the the director came on and said, you know, um, this is the you know this is the director's cut of the film, so you know it's it's longer. But he didn't say how long. He said it was he said it was about an hour longer than most documentaries would be. He didn't actually say that it was like forty minutes longer than his cut. It was a really weird way that he worded it. Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't said this was going to be. You just see, when you see. Like something that takes up that block of time, and then it says like Q and A. You just think, oh, it's going to be like extended, extended Q and A, yeah. And obviously, I mean, I didn't stay for the Q and A because I had to rush out to go and see something else. Um, but um, like you did, and it wasn't like a stupidly long Q and A, was it? So no, it was. It was. It was like ten minutes, and they had to cut it short. Yeah. Because they were short of time. But yeah, I mean, I think had I given the choice, I would have gone to see the theatrical cut rather than the extended cut. But it, I think it still says a lot about the film that we we still managed to get so much from it. Mm. Um, that um, you know, we still got so much from that extended yeah. cut where the 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 message was perhaps slightly kind of obscured by the running time. Um, the winner of the youth jury prize uh, was a film called God Loves Uganda. You didn't see that one, did you? Uh, no, I think I was um off. Uh, seeing something else. Well, obviously I was because I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I caught it um, on, I think, day three. Um, the film uh, that immediately sprung to mind as it started um, in a kind of really obvious way was a film that screened last year in competition called uh, Call Me Kuchu, which uh, is just getting a cinematic release now. Uh, in fact, it's just landed in America this week. Um, Call Me Kuchu was a, a you know pretty decent film about um, uh, kind of a gay activist and the struggle of gay activists in Uganda, a kind of a, a absurdly um, conservative Christian nation. Um, and God Loves Uganda was a film about the kind of maybe slightly wider context of that situation. That essentially, in after Idi Amin was uh, deposed, um, he the kind of, it was a power vacuum, and that power vacuum was filled filled not by other politicians or groups from Uganda, but uh, evangelical, ultra-conservative, right-wing Christian groups. And uh, it kind of almost imposed their values and their will on the country. And, you know, now we're seeing kind of two or three generations on the effect that's having. And with a, a bill about to go through the Ugandan parliament, which would make homosexuality uh, a crime, but even supporting homosexuality a crime, um, it was kind of more relevant than ever. That said, the film God Loves Uganda was great, really was great, but there, because it featured a lot of the principal players of, of Call Me Kuchu, and also, uh, at times, a lot of the same actual footage, mm -hmm. um, there, there was a, a, a kind of the most prominent gay rights activist in Uganda was a guy called David Cato, and it showed a big section from his funeral, which was the centerpiece of Call Me Kuchu. Um, so, yeah, it was, for me, I, I kind of almost wish I hadn't seen <laughs> Call Me Coochie going into it, because then I think it would have had a far greater impact. Yeah. Um, it was a, a very worthy winner of the um, the Youth Joy Prize. The other films that I saw from that shortlist uh, were good, but perhaps didn't uh, have the kind of weight of, of God Loves Uganda, and I think it was a, a, a thoroughly worth worthy winner. Uh, other winners on the list, uh, the Green Award went to Pandora's Promise, which neither of us saw. Nope. Yeah, but it's on the, the videotech, I think, so we'll try and um, catch up with it. And the Innovation Award went to Alma, A Tale of Violence, which, again, neither of us saw. We were too busy trying to kind of keep up with the big hitters that we kind of didn't see those kind of other awards. But we will definitely catch up with them in due course. Um, the big guest of the festival, the most kind of high-profile high guest, uh, was uh, editor, writer, director... Particle physicist, amateur astronomer, 
everything all around good egg uh, Walter Murch who was at the festival to deliver firstly a masterclass and then also to Q&A a few films uh, including Heart Darkness Apocalypse Now and the film Particle Fever with which he edited his latest project um, here's what me and Ed thought as we came out of the Walter Murch editing masterclass I wasn't really sure what to expect going, and obviously I knew, you know, his his back catalogue, and it's very intimidating. <laughs> and he's a, he's kind of a man who uh, is a is a great editor, a great sound designer, the first sound designer, because really that wasn't a thing until he came along. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I just found it to be absolutely fascinating, because uh, as uh, the the guy who interviewed him said beforehand, he wasn't just he's he's not just someone who only knows editing. You know, he's uh, he's, he's interested in astronomy, he knows about physics quite a bit, and uh, that kind of came through in his talk, because there was lots of stuff where he was talking about uh, biology and metaphysics and philosophy, and but all kind of working into talking about his his film work, and I just found that really, really fascinating. Yeah, he, he did come across as a man who kind of was a kind of exceptionally well-balanced artist across the board. He mm. understood... All of those elements of which it is to become a filmmaker, which makes it surprising that he's only ever directed once. As, as a practical um, masterclass, as an editor, I mean, as someone I've edited film before, it was it was really interesting to see how he does it. It's a lot based on, he had this metaphor of the black box and the snowflake. The black box representing control and the snowflake representing uh, kind of intuitiveness and kind of responding to things kind of as they go. Um, and he seemed to be someone who struck that perfect balance between mm. preparation and spontaneity. Yeah, because he also demonstrated his his sort of physical method. Obviously, he does lots of editing digitally now, but he still does, you know, as he described it, the most analog thing ever, which is using post-it notes and things to lay out the scene structure of everything. Yeah, he puts in the preparation so he can play around. Yeah, but and you really got a sense of just how much kind of thought and consideration he puts into it um you know and and, and uh, there was a, a quote at the end from francis ford coppola who described his uh, him as being sort of an ocean of calm which he then disputed but he did yeah. but saying that he actually is a really uh someone who is seems very controlling but he's actually just very very he just puts in all of this preparation so that you know he can play around and have fun um, but he he does seem appear to be a kind of a real proponent of moving things forward. He's not kind of one of those static kind of stuck in the mud filmmakers. He's very much supportive of uh, of uh, of kind of digital technologies and everything. And he was also um, he was surprisingly because you you often kind of feel with people who have been in the industry for a while that they'll be they'll look down on other kind of art forms or, or the new medium but he seemed very positive about the the potential of digital film. Mm-hmm. He was also you know surprisingly down on like mainstream filmmaking uh which is surprising for someone who's done a lot of it yeah <laughs> um but you know i thought it was quite interesting he was talking about you know the idea that um film seems to have seeded kind of the middle ground of art to television which you know i just kind of think whenever i think of like people who have been in like film for 40 odd years i just don't think they'll talk about things in those sort of terms so i'd found that really interesting yeah i did and he revealed that well he was kind of talking about this the spielberg's recent revelation that lincoln very nearly didn't make it as a film, because mm. even something that was directed by Steven Spielberg was about Abraham Lincoln. Daniel Day-Lewis. Day-Lewis was seen as risky. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be the, the kind of safest thing you could think of, really. And you can kind of see that also, you know, the, the recent thing with Behind the Candelabra, mm. where you've got Michael Douglas and Matt Damon and Matt Steven Damon. Spielberg yeah. um, working together, but no one wants to touch it, because it's like, ooh... 
bit risky, that one. Yeah. And, but then, like, the Spielberg one's kind of absurd in that context because, you know, the Liberace thing's touching on themes that perhaps people are not, uh, you know, sort of a whole sort of thing that maybe mainstream studios want, don't want to get behind. Mm. Whereas... It's hard to imagine anyone not wanting to make a film about <laughs> about Lincoln. Yeah, the most famous president ever. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah, in addition to Merch, um, who's no show at the interview with me, I will now refer to as Merch Do About Nothing. Um, the biggest uh, star, the one that me and you were most excited about, was uh, the appearance of This American Life host Ira Glass. Um, who did a much-in-demand session at the chapel. Uh, he was late. Uh, his plane arrived late, uh, having been delayed. So that we stood in a queue for an awful long time, a kind of a queue of epic proportions to get into such a small venue. That's how hot the ticket was. Mm-hmm. Um, and we witnessed a, a stunning uh, presentation about, uh, and a very candid presentation about uh, This American Life and its, its kind of goals and its, um, its kind of uh, raison d'etre, if you will. Yeah, I mean, uh, for people who don't know, This American Life is a podcast that uh, Ira Glass does. In he, he hosts. Uh, it's uh, put on out by uh, WBEZ Chicago, which is a public radio station in Chicago, Illinois, and um, it, it gets broadcast across the US. It's got a, a regular listenership of about 1.5 million people, and then 900,000 people download the podcast. Um, he didn't give a breakdown of how much that is worldwide, but it's. That that's kind of the way that the show has kind of built a global audience is, is through the podcast, I feel, because uh, public radio doesn't really kind of extend that far outside of the US. And this was his first um, public appearance in the UK. So, uh, and you know, he came and he gave this talk, which was very much about, uh, as you say, it was about how they commission stories. You know, they have um, uh, stories that are... They, uh, the way the show is structured is they choose a theme every week and then they just commission the stories to kind of meet that theme. And he was talking about how they usually commission like four times the number of stories they actually include. So he was very uh, candid about how sometimes just a story doesn't work. He had a very funny line about uh, bad interviewees, which was, uh, he said... Um, why do interesting things sometimes happen to inarticulate people? Yeah, it was it was a very um, dynamic session, considering it was you know the only thing you could go to were clips from mm-hmm. the radio show, and I think later on he showed a couple of um, clips from the TV show, the short lived mm-hmm. TV show that they did. Um, but he was uh, very candid about how much money they make, how much it costs to actually put the show together, um, how much of it ends up on the cutting room floor. Um, and I think what he said was when they did uh, was it when they did the TV show there was way more that didn't make it. Yeah, because the yeah because the TV show was um, just a, st- a thing where they had they were working with Showtime so they had a little more flexibility in terms of the budget than they do on public radio. Although you know they, he says that you know public radio is is a pretty cushy job uh, in terms of what you can do uh, yeah i mean they're not under any particular demands to what they do they do big pledge drives then they to raise money they raise money from advertising they raise and it's not kind of wall-to-wall advertising it interrupts the program it's just a couple of things they kind of tack on at the end mm. uh, they raise money from uh, donations through the, the website and selling apps and things like that and he was kind of expound espousing on that as being uh, um such a great way to do it and he was saying that he, he really uh, having done the film, he was the executive producer on Sleepwalk with Me. Yeah, and he he, t- he talked a lot about how he had been, he t- he'd had to go out push, uh, trying to, you know, get people to go and see it and like publicising it and 
you know get it get it distributed and he said that he he just found it to be he was amazed that you know people can do that for a living after having worked in public radio where you know they make a show a week the show goes out yeah. <laughs> and, and they get to do exactly what they want on it yeah, as well exactly. uh, i mean he was he was one of, i mean i thoroughly regret having to leave uh, five minutes early um <laughs> from the well from the end of the talk before i went into the q and a um but the 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 kind of uh, what i what i saw of it that was the one of my favorite sessions of the whole thing he was such an enlightening speaker and uh, such an affable presence that i mean that's what makes uh, this american life attractive anyway and see that kind of um on stage in, in person was uh, was really great and yeah and he was also there was a slight he was a, he was a little flustered by the being late cuz i think he had literally got off the plane and rather than go anywhere to get change he said he basically was wearing the same clothes he was wearing at 6 a.m the previous morning when he left chicago yeah, it was literally get off the plane get in a taxi get off yeah the taxi get on stage basically he yeah. had like, literally no prep time but it didn't feel that way no he was he, he was very uh capable of rolling with it because he's obviously an old pro at, at just speaking at length and he he really you know he was just uh, delightful he was very funny he enjoyed kind of he seemed to really enjoy kind of demonstrating the show to people and, and playing the clips, but also just when, you know, a clip would be uh, would be going on too long, he would do something like go, and it goes on. <laughs> and just he would just have this really kind of quiet, but, you know, even if people were really enjoying listening to it, he'd just be kind of like, you know, you know, you can't get how it goes, so let's just continue on to the next thing. And it didn't feel like he was rushing, it just felt like he was going like, you've had enough, let's, uh, let's move on to the next part of the thing. Yeah, it was um, pretty kind of inspirational as well. As as uh, and it's always as podcasters. I don't know how you kind of feel about this, but I, that that kind of level of um, of uh, professionalism and and also the kind of fun they have with it um, is something that kind of everyone who does podcasting should really aspire to. Yeah, because he he was very big on talking about how they want to the way they they do it is they try and make their own fun and even when they do a serious thing like they talk about doing a show from a, an aircraft carrier in the early days of the Afghan war, Afghanistan war um you know how all of the he, he uh, compared and contrasted their coverage with CNN's coverage and how CNN was like all bit bombastic and dead serious and what they did was they kind of played kind of like gently lilting music and then the interview they used was of the woman whose job it was to um stock the vending machines on the aircraft carrier yeah and their their kind of whole point was that you want people to start listening and not stop whereas mm. if you're immediately confronted with a here's the war here's it's serious it's gonna happen you're just like gonna turn off straight yeah, away and they want to show you the side of the war that you won't see just to kind of make you consider it in a different way because he was like saying you know his whole thing of saying it was like you know there's a war going on. We don't need to tell you that there's a war. Yeah. <laughs> what we what we can tell you is what does that war entail, like on all these different levels, and how does it affect different people? Yeah, I'm uh, very much uh, inspired to go back in and and because I've always been someone who's dipped in and out of Amer this American life. I'm very much motivated now to go and uh, kind of buy the app and. It was a great sales pitch for it, and I'll go, <laughs> go in and actually revisit all of them and see if I can listen to every single episode. Um, also at DocFest, uh, something we hugely enjoyed, the pair of us, was Adam Buxton's uh, live show, uh, The Best of Bug. Uh, here's how we felt uh, coming out. 
Now, let's be honest, Ed. This has no real relevance to a documentary festival whatsoever. No, no whatsoever. Um, but that was, a, you know, an hour and a half of the most fun I think I've had in a long time. Oh, yeah, it was hilarious. I mean, anyone who knows Adam Buxton knows that he's a, he loves music videos. He loves sort of internet ephemera uh, dearly. And uh, that was on full display. There was a great selection of just really technically very impressive music videos, lots of really cool animation. But uh, at the centre of it was him kind of doing the most entertaining TED talk imaginable like with his own little fake Bowie songs and his own jingles and stuff and just uh, being sort of his affable uh, garrulous self just kind of cavorting around the Crucible Theatre. Yeah, it's one of the few PowerPoint presentations you're going to see which features a video in which Brad Pitt has a dick for a nose. Yes, yeah, which uh, is more the pity. I think everything <laughs> needs that. Yeah, and I, I don't think, in the same way that the act of killing is going to haunt my dreams, I think the picture of Brad Pitt with a dick for a nose is going to um, mean I can't take him seriously in anything ever again. I think that's something everyone needs to reach, really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like we say, really didn't have any place at a documentary festival. <laughs> but um, during, I mean, it came on the second day. We'd just seen The Act of Killing. Um, it was uh, a hugely enjoyable experience. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for especially in that context, because, you know, we just had to watch a film about the depths of human cruelty. Yeah, <laughs> and then you get to go and just watch a man with a massive beardy face run yeah. around uh, doing just really silly videos <laughs> for an hour and a half. Do you think uh, that, I mean, kind of joking aside, as much as we loved it, do you actually think that that belongs at a documentary festival? Do you think that? Do you think that they kind of just got away with that as a as it was the twentieth anniversary? Do you think that? Do you think that there's going to be any ill feeling towards that being in there? Um. Yeah, possibly, but I think you'd have to be a real curmudgeon to begrudge putting something kind of in it that's just there to be like a bunch of fun, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe they could have fit in another masterclass or something, but if people just wanted to go and sort of have a good time in the middle of a documentary festival, now like film festivals in general are always full of very serious films about things that are depressing, and do- a documentary festival is, you know, that times 12, because... Mm. Let's face it, people who make documentaries are often very serious people who want to make very serious films to change the world. And so having something that is just a little bit of fun, I don't see why that's going to be a problem or why people would get angry about it. Um, but I do th- I do think that it's kind of like the 20th anniversary is kind of like, you know, we want to just have something that's like different. Yeah, um, and anyone who does complain about it, Fuck you. It was, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> it was great. great. Yeah. Um, the kind of the last of the big events um, that we, uh, well, you didn't see it, I saw it, um, was uh, the live score by the Unthanks. They did a, a, a performance at the Crucible called Songs from the Shipyards, which was a haunting, um, very evocative um, performance of uh, traditional um, shipyard songs and um, some other kind of compositions, all set to a montage of the history of shipbuilding in the Northeast. And unlike uh, the British Sea Power show and unlike um, the Big Melt, it was much more uh, telling a story cohesively. Mm-hmm. There was a definite beginning and there was a definite end. And the beginning was pretty much as early as any footage went to the shipbuilding and then right through to um kind of in, industrial boom to the, the kind of the, the heyday of the, of the shipyards right up to privatization closure 
through to the demolition of the shipyards and the kind of selling off. And it was a an intensely moving experience. Um, it was that it was the one event at Dotfest where I probably could have counted the Dotfest delegates on a couple of people's hands. Yeah, because um, it was the Sunday. It was the Sunday. A lot of people had gone home, but also the Unthanks have got a pretty decent following, and mm-hmm. I think. Um, there was probably about 700 people in the crucible, wow. and there was probably about 20 or 30 delegates in there. Everyone else yeah. was just an unthanks fan, um, and it was a, a beautiful way uh, to kind of close out for the festival for a, a lot of the people who did. Um, and it was a great event. Uh, the, there was a moment in it in particular where they performed the uh, Elvis Costello song "Shipbuilding" um, to. I mean, a song it's written about the Falklands War, um, and it was set to footage of the Falklands War, and it was uh, a big kind of emotional moment. I mean, I was sad anyway. The festival was coming to an end <laughs> as the last day, and that just kind of tipped me over the edge. Um, but that was a really beautiful way of um, of kind of uh, wrapping things up emotionally for the festival. I also think that um, that was a really good way of getting people through the door who perhaps don't know about about the Sheffield Documentary Festival. Because, um, I mean, I spoke to a couple of people that I knew who were there anyway just for the gig, and they didn't even know the Dot Fest was on, and mm. that kind of piqued their interest in something that's happening right on their doorstep. So that, that's pretty much everything we previewed covered. Mm-hmm. Um how was the festival in general, Ed? I mean, uh, this is your first one as as a kind of a, a delegate. Mm. Um, how did you find it? What was your overall overall impression of the festival? Uh, the thing I really liked about it was the events, getting to go to like you know all the stuff we've talked about, all the the hourglass thing, the Walter Merch, all of that stuff was great fun. I had a really great time at all of those things. The films themselves were often not great. I mean, you and I have said all the way that we haven't really seen any bad films at all over the over the course of the week. Um, just just a bunch of stuff that was kind of either good or mediocre, and maybe only one or two that you would kind of hedge up to kind of great, which we'll talk about in a minute. So that was kind of the sense I got that I saw a bunch of films that were okay, but I didn't really have a lot of strong feelings about, it, and I attended a lot of events that I thought were amazing. Um, but like the whole atmosphere of the place, going to the parties was a lot of fun. Um, and obviously, you know, because this is the first time I've been back in England and Sheffield for um, nine months, you know, it's been cool hanging out with you and like going to see stuff and, you know, seeing like a lot of my friends, some of whom were here as delegates, some of whom, you know, were working as volunteers or, or, or staff during the part during the, the festival. So um, I've just had a, it's just been like a, overall just like such a hugely enjoyable and fun experience. Yeah, I, I will kind of second what you said. Uh, and I mean, this is kind of the third one in a row that I've done as a delegate and and um, without wanting to sound kind of harsh, this has been by far the weakest set of films mm. that there have been um, just for that reason that there's been really relatively few films that had I, you know, I did make a list of the, the kind of five or ten films that I'd seen each dot fest um, and kind of how good they were and there's not really an awful lot that I saw this time round that would have made, you know, the top five in previous years. Um, but that said... In previous years at Dotfest, I have seen a couple of bad films each year. This year, I didn't see a single bad film. Mm. Just everything was just solid and good, but without the kind of breakout. I mean, um, whether that's our view of that is kind of uh, slightly biased by our active killing experience watching the longer cut, um, maybe we'd think slightly differently. Um, but it did seem to be that was the attitude of all the pe- people we spoke to, that um, the events this year were second to none, absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as part of a 20th anniversary celebration, that's something you want to see, something that's unique that nowhere else has got. I mean, Act of Killing and Blackfish and uh, all those other films have screened at other film festivals, but no one had the big melt. 
Yeah. Um, no one screened the summit in a cave. Uh, so, you know, those are the things that made it kind of stand apart. In terms of best films of the festival, um, like I say, it wasn't entirely kind of uh, without, you know, great things happening in it. Um, the film that both you and I have kind of picked as our film of the festival is one that we didn't see coming uh, in the preview. It's something that we just decided to see. I'm really glad that I caught it as the last film of the festival, um, the film Valentine Road. Mm. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Valentine Road, uh, the director asked before um, both screenings, and I think probably all screenings, to not reveal t- a huge amount about what the the film was about. And I think we will talk about it a little bit at length, so if you don't want to have it ruined, just kind of skip ahead like a minute or two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a um, an incident from uh, 2009, 2008? Eight. 2008, where a, a young uh, gay teenager named um, Lawrence King... Uh, was in a computer lab um, and uh, a fellow student uh, shot him in the back of the head twice and killed him. And he was a young uh, gay teen. He um, kind of dressed up in in women's clothes. And the the film is kind of about the impact that that his death had on the kids in his class, you know, Mm -hmm. the other sort of gay kids, Mm -hmm. uh, how it was viewed by the sort of the wider community, how it was viewed by America because it made a lot of big news you see in the you see in the film that there were things like you know like Ellen DeGeneres uh, kind of like you know talked about it um and but it, as well it also kind of goes into the the, the trial which is was a huge thing it was a huge deal you know there's this question of should the the young man who shot him be tried as an adult or not which he was um uh, and then you just kind of get an insight into sort of the lives of the people involved, including the lawyers um, for the defendant, who are um, pretty unscrupulous and uh, <laughs> fair. Yeah, the, the, I think the reason why, um, I mean, what you've said there doesn't isn't any more than you would read in a synopsis yeah. of uh, of the film. But um, the th- I mean, without saying too much again, like if the film just does not go where you think it's going to go, yeah. and um, I think when I sat down to watch it, I just thought we're going to hear A, we're going to hear B, and then at the end we're going to get the conclusion. Um, Then what we actually got was here are the facts, here's a little bit behind it, and then what about this that happened in in these kind of strange offshoots um, of the story? Uh, I really, really hope that that Valentine Road gets a wider release because that definitely deserves to be seen um, by as many people as possible because that was... Um, one of the the best responses I saw to any film that was shown in terms of the audience reaction. Yeah, because it's very it's a very moving film, you know, because there's obviously it's, it's built around a very tragic death. It's um, you know, and obviously you see the effect it's had on all these people who are friends with with uh, Lawrence. Um, and so and and some of that's very very hard to watch. You know, some of them are just like breaking down in camera and everything. And it's all handled with a great sensitivity. You know, it doesn't exploit it. You know, all this sort of stuff. Like when someone's, uh, it does cry. It doesn't kind of linger on them too much, but it also, you know, as you say, it goes off in such bizarre uh, directions in some ways. Like some of the people that are involved. There's a, I won't say what happens, but there's a scene with uh, three women having cake, mm. which is just mind-boggling when you see it, when you know in context like who these three women are and why they're having <laughs> this meal. It's just completely bizarre. Yeah, I mean. It, in that sense, the filmmaker uses uh, the trial and and the murder 
um, and everyone involved with it to explore kind of wider issues in American society, such as uh, attitudes towards gay rights, uh, conservatism in schools. Um, it, it's just a, a, you know, it's a, it's one of those classic documentaries that's the the proverbial stone in the pond. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you think um, you're going to see when you go in just kind of spreads out, and and the effects are very wide reaching. A, a, an astonishing film, and and are the shot reverse shot film of the festival. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, Act of Killing was also great, like we said. Um, we also uh, one of my favourite films, which you didn't see, uh, was a film called Muscle Shoals. Um, which has played at a couple of other festivals, but um, it got one showing here, and um, that was an incredible response. It was probably the most joyous film I saw of the whole festival. It was a, a film about the Muscle Shoals area of Alabama, where uh, in this kind of tiny, nondescript region of, of the state, there is some of the, uh, so, uh, a couple of music studios that have produced some of the greatest music uh, in the kind of soul and, and kind of rock genre that you could imagine um and it was a film that very much shared in common uh, did you ever see standing in the shadows of motown uh no no it's a, a film that shared a lot in common with that in the sense that um you heard a song that they said was cut in the studio and you were like oh wow that's amazing and then they play another one and you're like that as well really <laughs> and then it, it keeps the hits keep on coming mm-hmm. as they say and you know um without no i didn't really know much about the film before i went in other than it was about a recording studio but you know Within a couple of minutes, you you kind of realising that it's Wilson Pickett, it's Aretha Franklin, it's the Rolling Stones. It's like basically southern rock was invented there because yeah. uh, Greg Allman was came in as a session player, and when he played and brought his kind of uh, country blues infused stuff into the soul, uh, kind of uh, the session players, um, uh, that kind of gave that sound a name really, and then. The Allman Brothers band started, and then Skinner uh, recorded Freebird there. Um, so yeah, it was an amazing kind of look at that that scene, and the music's incredible. Just hearing that thing, you know, for a proper sound system and everything is is you know really exciting. The interviews they bring in, uh, Mick Jagger and Aretha Franklin, they speak to uh, Keith Richards is always good value. Percy Sledge, uh, Jimmy Cliff. Um, it does start with Bono, which I wasn't holding out much hope for after I saw him appear but uh, you know it recovers it better, really does better to start with Bono than end with Bono yeah that's, a, that's an excellent point but that was a really good film uh, I think we, we both agreed that the summit would be up there yeah. <laughs> near the peak of uh, <laughs> what the films were and that will be on wide release uh, a film we saw the Richard Pryor documentary Omit the Logic it was called uh, was uh, perhaps a little by the numbers but hugely enjoyable yeah I mean like uh, in a similar way to you talking about Muscle Shoals like one of the things that was great about um about uh, the Richard Pryor omit the logic was uh, it had an amazing soundtrack so it was kind of just you just kind of like watch along and you're bouncing along to like the really great sort of 70s 60s and 70s like soul music and everything that's playing to kind of like kind of drives moving moving along and there were the original scores by Miles Davis's son which Mm -hmm. was really cool but the main thing about it is you know um, it's a fairly standard kind of biopic. It starts in sort of the early 60s with Richard Pryor's first appearance on television when he was very young and this kind of uh, basically doing Bill Cosby's act because he thought that's how you had to be successful and then it just charts this these kind of series of highs and lows and highs and lows over the course of his career you know like he throws away a lucrative job in Vegas and he becomes a hippie for a few years uh, then he like rises and he's the biggest comedy star in the world then cocaine hits and he goes down then he becomes lots, like, of, cocaine. lots of cocaine he sets his head on fire um, and comes back from that and you know he's like beloved again he becomes a 
he becomes a movie mogul. His movie company collapses within a year. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it kind of there's just like a 20 years, which is just really sad. But, you know, it was like someone like me who kind of had an, a general sense of the outline of Richard Pryor's life. Um, it was, you know, it was great seeing all those details flesh out. But the thing that was amazing about it was just the clips were amazing. Yeah, they showed uh, the footage of uh, two of his most famous gigs, uh, the one in Sunset Strip, the kind of most famous one, and then uh, his live in concert film from uh, 1979, I believe it was. Um, to see that on the big screen was great. Also to see the little SNL sketches that perhaps have been kind of, uh, you know, only only exist on kind of box sets somewhere um, was really great to see those on the big screen uh, to see the, the footage from the Richard Pryor show that was uh, troublesome <laughs> got canned after was it a couple of episodes or a couple of seasons I think it was after a couple, I don't think it made it through a single season uh, it was nearly cancelled after like four because Pryor threatened to walk and they forced him to keep making more which he made a joke about where he was <laughs> he would end every episode by say talking to the camera and in one of them he says well I'll see you next week <laughs> NBC are going to make sure I stay here and there's like a lion lying yeah. on the floor yeah it was, a bit, it was yeah that was great I mean you weren't really going to learn anything new I mean the things you did learn were tiny details like he went out with Pam Greer I didn't realise that yeah. um, but or there would be funny little stories like his bodyguard talking about meeting his grandmother for the first time and like he bowed to her and then he just goes and that bitch punched me in the chest <laughs> yeah his grandmother was a, a terrifying kind of figure um, but yeah I mean if you if you know Kind of, if you've got a, a kind of decent understanding of, of Richard Pryor's life, you're not going to learn anything new, but you are going to see those, uh, you know, his story presented in a really exciting, dynamic way. Um, but yeah, it's uh, a very enjoyable film, but perhaps not one that will be uh, um, kind of heralded in, in years to come. We also saw a film called After Tiller, mm. which is uh, a, a, a film about. Um, uh, abortion providers in America who um, there's only four in all of America that can perform an abortion after 25 weeks is that correct uh, I think it's 20 up to 28 weeks and they will perform them after that for the health of the mother and child yeah so the film was so named for uh, George Tiller the um, uh, abortion provider who was murdered by uh, kind of members of the anti-abortion movement um, and yeah just talks about the the four remaining doctors who are able to do it and the struggles they have in continuing um, you said to me afterwards it's impossible to make an apolitical film about abortion um, this film gives it a pretty good shot yeah um, but and is, is very um, very delicately handled yeah, definitely. I mean, like when I, when I say that it's possible, it's impossible to make an apolitical film. I just mean like by just making a film about abortion, you have to take a political stance on it, and and people will have a political stance on the film because just by saying, even as in this film where they don't really go into the politics or the morality of is this right, they still say this happens, and because they don't put a judgment on it, people will kind of read into it what they will. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's very, it's very more about um, sort of being a nuanced, sensitive portrayal of what it's like to be someone who has to make the decisions to kind of like, you know, there's some, uh, you know, there's lot, there, there's scenes both, you know, of the doctors. At one point, one of the doctors is because uh, they have to decide if someone did not deserves, but someone should have the abortion at a late stage, and uh, one of the doctors is reading a letter from someone who says who gives all these details about why they didn't realise they were pregnant and why they need it so late and everything like that. And you can see that it's really hard because she is really struggling with the question of, you know, should I perform this abortion? Is it um, something that uh, is threatening to the woman's health? No. Is it going to, like, destroy her life? 
who can say you know and that and you know kind of really wrestling with that but also you know there are these absolutely heartbreaking interviews with the people who are or, or or filmed sessions with the uh the people who are who are, who want to have the abortions um you know where you know there's one which both you and i cited as kind of like the absolute kind of heartbreaking one of a woman talking about how they discovered that the child would be born with you know just tremendous tremendous health problems and um it would live a very short life and it'd be in tremendous pain and she says you know she feels that she had to you know have the abortion now because she didn't think that she would be strong enough to give birth to it and then have to make the decision to take it off life support and you know it's just like it's just like that and and none of it's kind of overwrought none of it is um kind of trying to sensationalize anything it's just presenting these things in a very matter-of-fact way and that's kind of the the the, the, the power of it really yeah, it was a, a very powerful, very emotional film. The film Blackfish was one that we were very much looking forward to. Uh, you didn't get a chance to see it, Ed, so I wrangled in Martin Parsons, who was covering the festival for Fon House. Here's what we thought. Um, having been to SeaWorld as a youngster and really enjoyed these whale shows... Do you feel guilty now? I feel very, very guilty. Yeah. And I also think I may have seen Tillicum the killer killer whale uh, when I was younger yeah I was trying to piece that together myself I think I went in the kind of early 90s so maybe I did may, I don't think I did I, think I might have just missed it but um, I remember being a kid and going to see um, those killer whale shows and all of it uh, and um, loving that kind of thing but it, it, the sea world presented in that film was anything but kind of uh, rosy and yeah and you suddenly see the kind of party lines that they were towing at the time and realize oh, yeah. the truth behind them well i was really stunned given how SeaWorld's uh kind of um uh raison d'etre if you will is conservation they told bold-faced lies about the species like the the dorsal fins flapping over is a very common thing whereas in reality it, it appears in what do they say one percent of male population That's and it, in captivity they yeah. said that they they um uh, only live to 30 35 years which is that's a gross underestimate in the wild. They live up to 50 to 100 years. Yep. Um, that SeaWorld didn't come out of that very well at all. Not at all. But I think also the film in itself, um, what the director did really well was integrate um, footage from a fiction film, the film Orca Killer Whale, which <laughs> yep. I have actually seen. Yeah. Um, Charlotte Rampling's in it, so it can't be all bad. Mm. Um, but I think that actually worked really well because she, like me, saw this film and was affected by one particularly harrowing sequence that plays on this idea of humans hunting down these intelligent animals yeah and i think that actually gave really good context to the film in a sort of simple way obviously this sort of involves you having seen orca killer whale yeah but if you have it really kind of helps with the mood that she's trying to set and i think that worked really well it's not something you see that often yeah i, I think what i found um really interesting about the film um was I mean it's not a film I wholeheartedly liked I, I did think it had a few problems with it um, but the thing that was interesting about the film was the revelation that there's never been a human attacked or killed in the wild by killer whales that they are yeah they're called killer whales but they only have ever caused the deaths of people when kept in captivity and that was a that was something I just never even thought about yeah completely I mean it really opened out the the topic to things I'd never. Yeah, I never even considered this was the situation. I never considered it quite how small the tanks are that mm. they keep them in, all these sort of things. Um, and yeah, I think for that, maybe 
yeah, as a film, it's not entirely perfect. But I think this is sort of a recurring theme this year in that the films are solid. Yeah. I haven't seen many bad films. Yeah. Um, but compared to last year where there were big hitters, I mean, they were Searching for Sugar Man, Five Broken Cameras, all these sort of films that sort of then were Oscar-nominated and indeed won Oscars yeah, yeah. that we were sort of premiering last year. Um, I think maybe this year there haven't been as many of those... So those are a few films that we uh, enjoyed, um, but like we listed in our preview, um, one of the things that was really great and is really great about Dotfest is the parties and the social scene. Uh, we sampled a bit of that. We had a lot of fun. Um, there was uh, We spent a lot of the festival kind of chasing freebies <laughs> in a really <laughs> shameless way. There was a bit where we had, we'd had we been told there was a free breakfast on offer, and in our search for it, we kind of stumbled around everywhere, including kind of... Uh, uh, Gate crashing, should we say, a uh, session on um, pitch meeting. A pitch meeting, kind of walked into <laughs> upstairs into this bit. We we knew there would be trouble when they scanned our passes on the way in, and uh, we got up there and there everyone was in suits and talking very seriously about you know, whatever. And then a stage manager asked us to kind of move on because all we were looking for was some some freebies, uh, which we didn't find in the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had a great time. Uh, I'm going to play you a clip from um, uh, one of the parties. It was a Saturday night party. Um, which is going to serve as a demonstration as to why you don't interview people, A, on a dance floor, and B, whilst you're drunk, because this is the kind of thing that happens. Okay, uh, next p- next uh, head on the block is uh, Ralph McKinder, who has been covering the festival this year for Sick Blog. Uh, festival Virgin, Hello. how did it feel to have your back door smashed in, Dockfest style? Fucking great. I've got a massive gaping anus. <laughs> Ralph... <laughs> Yeah, moving on. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> so, um, of all the uh, docks you managed to fit in your ma- massive. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, I mean that's not really hard hitting journalism, is it? Uh, I think it's gonzo journalism. Yeah, it's gonzo, but like without any of the insight. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was an awful lot of fun. Um, yeah, and yeah, it was as as much as the film program was perhaps not quite as uh, as stellar as it has been in previous years. Um, I did enjoy this Dotfest a huge amount. Yeah, I mean I did as well. You know, I just had it was just a great week, just running around. Watching films, attending all the sessions, which, as you know, I've said all along, were the were the kind of the real highlight for me, and uh, uh, the thing I enjoyed being able to experience most, like in my new capacity as a delegate, uh, and yeah, like just going to the parties and like meeting people and everything was just was just like great. It was just so much fun. Yeah. So um, thanks to everyone who spoke to us. Uh, sorry to everyone whose interviews I couldn't include, um, and thank you to Dotfest for a, a great festival, and we hope to do this next year um we'll have another episode well we'll probably be recording another episode um while you're here ed i hope we can squeeze one in Um, until uh next time it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me